Hello and welcome to another episode of Building Success, a real estate podcast. My name is Nick and I will once again be your guide as we talk to some of the best and brightest in the worlds of real estate tech, operations, and financials from across the globe. This podcast would not be possible without listeners such as yourselves. So if you like what you hear and you want to hear more of it, please consider liking and subscribing to the podcast wherever it is that you might listen to us, whether that be Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, all of these uh, channels give us information on how well we're doing based on the likes and reviews and comments and all of that. So please think about reaching out and telling us how we're doing. You can also tell us how we're doing at our website. That's buildingsuccess.io. There is a contact us section. Please fill that out if you would like to be a guest or know someone who would be a guest, or even if you have a topic that you'd like us to cover, uh, we would certainly appreciate hearing from you. So today's podcast, I am speaking with James Cook, who is the Director of Retail Research for the Americas for JLL. And as you may know and have listened in the past, we did an episode on retail, and that was probably about a year ago. And we talked about how e-commerce was really affecting brick-and-mortar retail and, and what the future looked like. And today we we sort of revisit that, but really look at how now these digital retailers are embracing physical stores and having a physical footprint. So almost an inverse relationship uh, to what we saw about a year ago. And James does a really good job kind of diving into some of the research that JLL has done and some of the things that they're seeing as trends and where they see the next year going so that when we revisit this topic a year from now, we can kind of see how, how we're doing and shaping up to, to what's happened over the last couple of years. So really fun conversation um, with a great podcaster in his own right. Be sure to check out his podcast, Where We Buy, the, the JLL retail podcast that he hosts. Uh, but for now, stay tuned to this podcast. So without further ado, I bring you James Cook. So thank you to James Cook, my guest today, for joining me. He is the uh, Director of Retail Research for the Americas at JLL. How are you doing today, James? Awesome, Nick. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm very happy to have you as well. And uh, talking about retail again, and we've, we've done this on the show in the past, but I, I definitely feel like revisiting this about a year later is definitely warranted, especially with some of the things that I, I hope we dive into today. But before we do that, if you wouldn't mind giving our listeners just a little bit of a background on yourself and what ultimately brought you to JLL. Yeah, so my job, and I have to say, I'm probably one of the luckiest people in, uh, in our industry because my job is really to tell the story of retail real estate through a bunch of different venues. So um, I have a small uh, research team at JLL and we write reports. Uh, we do some custom research for clients. I speak at a lot of events. I do videos and podcasts and I get to just go out and learn things from people and share them with everybody about retail. So I feel very lucky to, to be able to do that. I've been um, in retail uh, real estate research uh, and commercial real estate research for, I'm in my 20th year now, wow. which I don't know what what happened. It was like, you know, a blink of an eye. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
But uh, about five years ago, um, JLL started bulking up its retail brokerage. So really started focusing on recruiting over top-notch um, retail um, brokers. And as a part of that, they wanted to be able to have a, um, a top-notch retail thought leadership program. So that's what I got brought on to build up. And I've been having a lot of fun just building up that platform from scratch, getting this awesome group of um, smart people together. And we're doing original research on things like, you know, defining retail experience or how do you build a food hall or what's the future of retail technology. So all kinds of fun stuff, exciting stuff that's going on right now. So it's, I feel, you know, I feel very lucky. Well, and let's let's talk about some of this future stuff that's that's happening in the retail space. And as I already alluded to, uh, I'm excited to talk to you today because I've done one of these podcasts about retail in the past, and and it feels like in the last year there's been a lot of things moving. And you know, the last time we discussed it here, we were discussing how this digital transformation of of retail has affected that that brick and mortar store, those original. Um, anchor stores, be it in malls um, or, or where have you. But it seems based on some of the research, and, and I read a report that JLL put out that you sent me, um, which I'll, I'll definitely link to in the show notes here, but um, it's referencing how brick and mortar, that that concept of having the, the physical location is now affecting that digital presence that maybe digital only uh, retailers had in the past. Can you Can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. So the kind of the legacy trend that we've been dealing with for years is that online retail has been taking some of that market share from bricks and mortar. And that's still continuing, although the growth is now slowing. We've seen a slowing of that of that growth. But on the other hand, we're seeing this counter uh, example where uh, digital native retailers are um, kind of experimenting and expanding, and actually now in a big way. It's more than just an experimentation. It's a real trend into bricks and mortar. So let me think about this. Let me give you an example of how this works. So let's say you start an online-only business. Um, what do you want to sell? What's your online What's your on- online business, Nick? I want to sell shoelaces. Okay, awesome. So they're tech enabled virtual reality uh, AR shoelaces. They keep um, themselves tied via technology. I love it. Okay, so they're app-connected shoelaces. Perfect. So you start, let's say you start a Kickstarter to get a prototype going, you collect some money, um, you actually get this thing up and running, and they turn out to be a little bit of an online hit. Mm -hmm. So you've got an online store, things are good, everybody wants your... uh, app-connected shoelaces. And by the way, this is a great idea. I think <laughs> we need to start this business. Can't turn it off. I can't we'll turn talk. it off, James. We'll talk after the show. So <laughs> you get this momentum. You get this uh, online store, uh, and then you take on investors. And you use investment money to acquire more online customers, usually through Facebook. Um, you grow your market share by buying customers, basically. But it gets tough, right? Mm-hmm. And at some point, you're gonna plateau with how many shoelaces you can sell through Instagram ads, especially considering you're not really making a lot of money off of them because you gotta pay so much money to acquire customers. Yeah. Um, so now you're in a point where you would like to sell 
shoelaces to people offline because it's actually less expensive to acquire customers when they're just walking by your store. Um, plus, you know, we're talking about an apparel uh, accessory good in this case, and people want to test it out. Um, people who are not early adopters and aren't trendsetters still will buy it, but they have to play around with it in a physical setting. So they end up opening stores. Um, and not every digital native retailer needs to open a store, but if you're selling apparel, accessories, um, some electronics, all of these things lend themselves very nicely uh, to selling um, in a physical setting. So we did, last summer, we did kind of a, a census and did a count of all the digital native retailers and what their plans were. And this was a year ago, we counted about 850 new retail locations that we're gonna open in the next five years um, ba um, from digital natives. Now that actually turns out to be kind of an undercount because there were a bunch that we knew about, but since they weren't actually officially announced, we didn't count them. So we're gonna redo that number this summer. We're gonna rerun the report. And I have a feeling that that number is gonna be a lot bigger. Um, even though the report's a little bit old now, um, it just got picked up by the Wall Street Journal. They cited it in a video. So it's, it's kind of come on to a new life. And uh, I've, done, uh, I've been getting emails about this report again. So I'm really excited that it's, it's getting more, um, it's continued to have relevance. Yeah, and we'll we'll definitely share it on this on this podcast and put it in the show notes as well because it was it was really interesting and one of the parts that was really interesting to me is the concept that these are sometimes pop up stores right um, they have smaller footprints they have less inventory and it's it's interesting to me that they're they're doing it almost as a uh, a marketing expense as an ad just just in presence not online so they have the store in some cases you can't even can't even purchase things there right that's definitely true in some cases although we're finding that pure brand you know pure marketing pop-ups are less frequent i think they're the digital natives are understanding that their goal is really to sell things um but there's certainly, there's a path that we've seen. We did a, another report kind of defining what that path looks like for these guys. So let's go back to our, uh, our shoelaces, <laughs> our app-connected shoelaces. So yeah. um, we've got expertise selling them online, um, but we don't really know how to sell in the store because we've never done it. So we're gonna sm start small. And the smallest thing is the pop-up because we all know about pop-ups now. So you do, one or two little pop-ups, maybe over a weekend, maybe during the holidays, maybe in the month of December. And you'll do, they usually do pop-ups wherever you're at. You know, if, if our headquarters are in New York, then we'll do a pop-up somewhere in New York. And we'll choose the neighborhood really based upon availability and what we think matches with our brand. But it's kind of a small iterative experiment, so we don't put too much thought into it. We just kind of want to get that store open. And if, if those pop-up experiments work, then we're gonna try some permanent stores. And in our research, we found the top places where these digital natives will open up permanent stores are in Los Angeles, New York, and San Francisco. And it's, it's about selling stuff, but it's also about brand building, as you've mentioned. So they're gonna tend to open in hip retail corridors or the prime urban corridors. Um, and so, for example, uh, you know, like Tom's Shoes would open in an Abbott Kinney in Venice. 
mm. California, or they'll open in on South Congress in Austin. Um, these are, you know, hip, chic, boutique shopping areas, and they kind of lend themselves to making your brand look cool. And so they get a few permanent locations. If that goes well, kind of the next phase is they'll roll out maybe up to 10 locations. They'll still be thinking a lot about each neighborhood. You know, is this a neighborhood that really aligns with our brand? And then they get to that final phase of 10 plus stores. And when you hit that number, now you got to think mainstream. Um, now they're not going to open up anywhere, but they are going to start looking at class A malls across the U.S. So if you look at somebody like a Warby Parker or a Bonobos, um, you know, so like Warby Parker, they started um, their first location, I think it was in Soho in New York, or maybe it was Flatiron. I think it was Flatiron. Anyway, not important. Uh, they opened up some locations in some hip districts, and then they started opening up locations in class A malls across the U.S. to the point where, so I'm based in Indianapolis, Indiana, mm-hmm. and we have a Warby Parker at our, our best class A mall in the state. So they're still focused. They're, they're focused on the best locations, high traffic areas, but now they're kind of like, well, in a lot of cities, the best locations are in these nice malls. So these digital natives end up opening stores in malls, which is a little bit ironic if you think about the, the dominant narrative around retail right now. Yeah, yeah. And, and so and you've mentioned some of these, these locations and some of these different brands. Um, how might from a from an actual perspective between the landlord and the tenant, some of these relationships change? Because with the pop-up store, some of this stuff feels a lot more short-term and experimental, maybe. Um, how, how do you see that changing the relationship between those two parties? So the landlord, um, and, and my experience has been talking with a lot of the major um, landlords right now, major owners of top retail assets across the U.S. who are all looking to attract digital native retailers to as tenants because they realize they're good traffic drivers. People are excited about them. Mm-hmm. Um, they're all devoting resources to becoming partners with these guys because the, uh, the digital natives don't necessarily understand physical retail at all. Um, so the, the owners are thinking collaborative, collaboratively and they're offering more advice on stuff like operations and marketing and consumer research that maybe a traditional retailer would be able to do themselves. Um, they're trying to offer more turnkey solutions, shorter term leases, kind of flexibility around rents. So some may want to do a percentage rent because they would view it as less risky while others don't want that, they just want just here's the flat rent, let's go with it. Um, at the end of the day, a lot of landlords are taking um, spaces in their shopping centers and um, making you know making them into kind of nice vanilla um, retail sh- shells and saying this is going to be our space for we're going to turn in different pop-ups here and test out different retailers. Or there've been bigger experiments like Brandbox and. Um, four post, which are kind of marketplace settings where multiple retailers uh, can do different pop-ups within them. So it's a kind of uh, a turnkey retail marketplace. Um, Neighborhood goods is another one. So there's a lot, there's a lot of experimentation, I think, going on in, in this area right now. 
And that's that's definitely concerning the the Class A malls, as as you said. We're seeing that growth there. Um, what what are we seeing with some of those lesser malls that were definitely impacted pretty hard by e-commerce? Yeah, and the biggest impact across the mall space is around the mid, I guess you'd call it midline retailer. So it's going to be not your high end and not your value, but the stuff that's middle priced, um, stuff that you would, you know, when I was a kid bought at Sears or JCPenney, um, stuff that's middle, middle priced, uh, or, you know, um, would have bought an apparel store, um, or a shoe store or something like that. Um, those are, those mid range guys are being hit the most right now, just because there's a flight to value and a flight to, to high end and the yeah. stuff in the middle seems to be shifting online. So there are, it depends on the center. If we're talking about enclosed centers, you could be, um, sort of what we might call a B or C enclosed center. But if you're in a smaller market, so you're the only mall in town, um, you can keep going, uh, because that's where everybody comes to shop. Um, but if you are not the dominant player in a big city, there's a lot of competition for retail right now. So those are the shopping centers that may have to find a new highest and best use, not for the entire center necessarily, but, but for parts of the center. So we're seeing some centers um, spinning off what, my, what was once a department store into office space or apartment space. Um, you know, co-working space. We've seen examples of that as well. So there's a lot of different healthcare is another big one we've seen. Mm. So a lot of this stuff is great real estate. It's just retail is no longer its highest and best use. Which is really interesting when you say like valuable real estate in the sense a lot of these malls are very conveniently located. Obviously, parking for a lot of them is, you know, there's there's plentiful parking for some of these locations. And they're just right now, some of them are just sitting barren. So it's interesting how some of this stuff is, is being utilized by non-retail means. Yeah. And I would say that I, there are very few quote unquote dead malls out there. I mean, you see, you know, online, those get a lot of the, you know, there's a website, you know, highlighting all the dead malls, but honestly, um, that's that's a real minor part of the enclosed mall segment. I would say the biggest chunk is your mall that uh, is still chugging along, um, still has a lot of retailers that people are going to, but probably has a department store that might be in danger of going out. And so the question isn't, you know, that this mall is going to die. The question is, what can we, how can we re-envision this department store space into something that's going to keep this this mall vital into the next decade. Interesting. Very very interesting. I I'm thinking you know I'm I'm from Northeast Ohio and I know you know there have been two big name malls that have closed um, probably in the last five to ten years. One that's very close to where I live is probably at a third occupancy right now. Uh, but interestingly enough, they are planning to do a big like weekend long festival on the property as a means to try to like spur the area up, which was really interesting. But um, something something I wouldn't expect. But if it if it helps even bring traffic to that area, it might be might be a good thing. Yeah, and I'm not too familiar with 
uh, Northeast Ohio specifically, but I mean, more broadly, we're seeing um, shopping center managers and owners doing all kinds of creative things to kind of reinvigorate their centers. There's one, there's a, there's a center that we manage, uh, the JL, so JLL, um, we don't uh, own shopping centers, but we do third-party management. Um, so we'll manage them for others. And uh, there's a center in um, Minneapolis, or in the Minneapolis area called Rosedale, and they've got a real creative um, marketing team there. So they're doing stuff like trying to think. They just had a, I think they just had a drag show recently, <laughs> and they're doing different concerts and all kinds of cool stuff. Yeah, I'm like, just right to bring on, man. In. Keep it going. Yeah, that's really cool. So. So again, as I said, you know, a year ago we talked um, with with somebody else in this space and brought up the the fact that e-commerce was really affecting the brick and mortar, and now we're seeing that you know these these digital companies are utilizing some of that physical location properties of of traditional brick and mortar retailers to to help advance their brands. What are what are you and, and JLL kind of seeing as the future? What's what's going to happen in the next year when we revisit this topic again? Well, let me think. So we just ran a big consumer survey of um, fifteen hundred American shoppers to get a sense of what their expectations are for the next decade of retail. So. We run into this a lot where we'll find out about some new in-store robot technology that's going to, um, you know, revolutionize the in-store experience. But then you talk to shoppers and they're like, well, I don't necessarily want a robot in my store. And so anyway, we ran a survey and we found the number one thing that people say they want uh, to improve their in-store experience. And this was over 50 percent of people said was a uh, skilled customer service representative. So <laughs> kind of like, let's just bring it back to the old school and do the good things right again. Um, so that I, th- I think there's a return to that, which is difficult right now because unemployment is so low that it's um, difficult to keep good people. Yeah. Um, so as a part of that, as a part of in- improving customer service, I-, I-, I expect a big growth in technology behind the scenes that allows um, retailers to improve customer service. So that could be a database or tool that helps them to remember you and your preferences. Um, It could be um, some new loyalty program that makes you feel special. Um, And then beyond that, beyond technology, you know, we're just seeing all kinds of new experimentation around good food offerings, new entertainment, um, and then ease of um, like speed of, of getting your goods. So uh, same day delivery um, and in-store pickup. So that is what we call omni-channel where kind of bl- the blurring the lines between online and offline. So if I buy something yeah. at a store and I don't want to wait to have it shipped and go pick it up, all that stuff. Which is, which is interesting too, because there's, there's a lot of people like, let's say on the, on the residential multifamily side, there are people that are looking for apartment communities that have, you know, mixed use retail as part of the the building structure. They want to be able to live, work and play on a property. And 
in the shopping experience, it seems like the experience is, is the big piece of it, where before it was all about just the demand and being able to shop and get what you needed. But now that you have that capability online, what else can you give me to make it almost worth my time? And so that physical experience and, and human interaction is, is definitely one piece. But I think the tech side of it is always going to dominate what happens in the future. Yeah, and it's almost like there's two different retails. So on the one hand, you've got the experiential stuff. And I think, for example, I don't know if you've heard about American Dream at Meadowlands, but it's this mall that's been under construction for quite some time, but it's finally about to be delivered uh, in northern New Jersey near uh, Metro New York uh, this fall. And it is, it's about 50% entertainment and food. Um, really amazing project like indoor water park, indoor ski slope, multiple food hard, food halls and food courts and amusement park, uh, totally insane. Um, so that's the one thing, you know, you offer just a one of a kind of experience um, in retail to drive, drive traffic. And then the other is kind of that we talked about within a residential setting, and that is an intimate, authentic, daily retail experience that people want integrated you know, into like a mixed use project. So we're seeing a lot of that now too, where um, developers aren't make, aren't necessarily making much money on retail rents, but their retail tenants are the ones that drive all the excitement and drive the office users and the apartment users to lease there and they get their money on those multifamily and, and office rents. And there's so much, It's it's really fascinating how you know, people obviously want to want to sell their goods and services, and finding ways to bring it in underneath the underneath the veil of of entertainment, of it being you know previously some sort of either living quarters or a musical destination. And you know, I just read they they did the airport surveys like they do every year, and Singapore's Changi Airport once again was like number one, and it's mainly because they built this just gigantic mall-like experience with waterfalls and these easy trams that people are actually taking extra layover legs that they can stop at Changi Airport and actually see it and then visit all of these shops and buy. And, you know, that experience piece is really helping to drive what what ends up becoming the consumerization of, of these retail spaces. That's such a good point. I haven't been to that airport myself. But um, as a frequent traveler, I can't tell you how much I appreciate kind of in the past decade and a half, this new focus on ramping up the food and beverage and retail at at airports. Like somebody really just, they just, everybody just started getting on their game. They all started partnering with local, um, you know, local restaurants to open up, you know, they'll, you know, for example, at the Denver airport, there's this restaurant called Root Down that uh, was just a local restaurant, and they just opened up a branch within the airport, and I try to eat there every time I fly through Denver. It's like, it, it just makes it so much fun. It's really yeah. cool. Yeah, there's there's one airport I flew through, and I can't remember which one it was, and I was like, it's such, now this is more service than retail, but like, they had a barber shop, and I was like, that makes so much sense in a place where people are waiting around for hours on end some, some some task that they you know have to go out of their way to accomplish that they could get it done while they're at the airport you know there's there's so many ways to build that experience on these types of locations that the space is there 
And in many cases, the people are there. It's just how you get them to, to want to be there and, and stay and to obviously consume. Yeah, and it's, you know what, too, I think it is a post 9-11 thing. Because so I, when you used to travel before 9-11, you didn't worry as much about security and you just kind of roll up right before your flight. Now yeah. everybody's like, I got to get there two hours early because I don't know what security is going to be like. And so they have this captive audience and, you know, thank goodness that they're, you know, they're offering a lot of things to treat, to treat people right. I, I just uh, was reading um, about, and I forget the name of the concept, there are multiple of these nap um, concepts that are like mini rent by the hour suites. Yeah. Uh, I, know, I, I know there's one at the Atlanta airport, there are several others um, where you can just go in and, and rent a little room and take a nap when you have a layover. Same, same deal. I, I can't tell you how many times I would, I'd pay very good money to have not even a nap pod, but maybe just a shower stall, especially on some of these international oh, flights yeah. and things, right? Like there's, there's ample opportunity, um, in those, in those airport spaces, which, you know, I think is slowly to your point, catching up to what some of these mainstream retailers are doing to, to keep and attract future, future, uh, shoppers. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. So, uh, so tell me, James, what's new and exciting happening with JLL? Let me think here. So I would say in a word for me right now, it's all about Canada. Okay. Um, <laughs> that was, August, that was not the word uh, I was expecting, the, by the way, nothing, nothing I, against you, Canada, but of all of the, all of the things that's, that's interesting. Why is that? You thought I was going to say plastics. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. Just, or just um, innovation, right? Something, something really right. easy. Uh, well, it, it's very specific to JLL. So here's the deal. In August, um, we acquired this firm called Northwest Atlantic, which was the top, uh, is the top retail tenant rep brokerage in Canada. And so suddenly, whereas I wasn't paying a ton of attention to Canada, suddenly we have all these really big clients and projects going on north of the border. Um, so I've just been thinking a lot about Canada. I just hired, uh, we just hired a new retail research lead. Um, and I'm spending more time up there. I was just in Toronto, it's like a week ago. Um, and so we've got a lot of interesting research that's Canada based that's going to be coming out. Um, I was just actually, there's a great food hall, uh, assembly chefs hall. So we do a podcast and we just record a podcast up there and we're also doing, um, have you ever heard of the mink mile in no. Toronto? No, I haven't. So it's the most expensive luxury shopping in Canada. Uh, Bloor Yorkville. Uh, it is kind of the Fifth Avenue of Toronto, and we're working on a report that's going to cover that market. So I've just been thinking a lot about it lately. And wh when I was up there, actually, are you familiar with the the um, the brand Goop, the Gwyneth Paltrow brand? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So they just opened a Goop pop up uh, in in the Bloor. I think it was on Yorkville, is the street that it's on. And uh, so we were up there. Uh, talking to the guys, uh, the guy that's, that's running it. And, and, um, anyway, that's neither here nor there. Just uh, a lot of, a lot of Canadian thought going on. Not that that's, you know, that, I think that's an internal JLL thing that, that <laughs> I've just got a big focus on Canada right now, but we've got a ton of cool stuff coming out. Like I said, we get to focus on the most interesting stuff. So we've got a big report coming out called, so you want to build a food hall. And this is the target audience for this is all of the developers. It seems like every day a new developer says, hey, 
we're thinking about putting a food hall in this project, you know, and it might be an office building and it might be an apartment. You never know, yeah. but they all want to put a food hall in it. So we created, are creating this report that's like a, a how-to. It's not, it's, not a, it's not a complete how-to, but it's an overview of all of the decision-making that has to go into creating, curating, building, and operating a food hall. So that's been a fun project to work on because we've been learning a lot. Well, that's cool, and and all of these reports, I'm I'm sure we can get we can get links put in the show notes to send out to people too. I know we have a lot of property managers that that listen to this show, and a big piece of what we've been covering in in recent episodes has been on on development and embracing some of the some of the new ways that you can build and and even just innovate old old properties too. So that's that's pretty great. So. Thank you, James, so much for your time. Uh, if people want to get in touch with you, how, how can they do that? Yeah, so if you want just more uh, info on the kind of stuff that I've been talking about, um, in addition to the links to the existing reports that you're going to put up, I would recommend following me on LinkedIn. Um, if you go to um, LinkedIn and search for James Cook JLL and just click on follow, um, I post all of our reports and videos that we produced and podcasts. And if you really want to get into it, the best way to hear the latest and greatest is to listen to our podcast, which is called Where We Buy. And it's available, just search for it on any podcast app or it's on uh, our website, which is wherewebuy.show. Beautiful. Well, James, again, thank you so much for your time. This was this was a lot of fun, and I really appreciate you uh, diving into uh, the latest and greatest in all things retail. This has been so awesome. I really this just flew by. So yeah. fun conversation. Thanks for having me, Nick. Not a problem. So until next time, we will catch y'all later. Bye.